your copy of God's Word this morning, you'll see that the Apostle Paul is talking with us about the church. This is the universal church. This is all saints from all places and all times, and he's helping us to understand the importance of the church. And I know sitting here this morning, uh, if you're like me, it can be easy to become discouraged about the state of the church and the world as you look around. As you read headlines, perhaps you've read just this past month that the United Methodist Church in our own country has announced it has plans to split over the issue of homosexuality. It was a church that was born through the clear preaching of the gospel of repentance from sin and faith in Christ by George Whitfield and John Wesley during the first great awakening. It was a vibrant, powerful movement of God, and yet now it is literally being torn apart through compromise and heresy. And this same pattern is being repeated in other, other denominations, and it's frankly just sad to watch. It's sad to see. There are also concerns about what seems to be a lack of impact in the church in our broader culture. So the, the media loves to trumpet the rise of the nuns, those young people who profess no real uh, adherence to any particular form of religion or organized religion. Apparently, that's a good thing in the eyes of the media. And as a whole, it does seem that the church in the West, anyways, is getting weaker and weaker. At least it seems that way. And then, of course, there are the personal disappointments that, that you know, if you've been in the church for some period of time, perhaps you've had. Perhaps it was a nasty church split, or perhaps it was uh, kind of a domineering, ungodly leadership. Perhaps it was broken relationships in the church. Many of us sitting here this morning have been hurt by people in the church. And that's hard. That's a difficult thing. And so it can be easy to become discouraged about the church. Uh, and that's why we need to remind ourselves of God's perspective on the church. We need to remind ourselves about what the New Testament says uh, about the church, what the church is, and what God's plan for the church is. Uh, as you read through the New Testament, you just see over and over and over that the church is valuable to God. And, and he gives us pictures of the church as you read through that demonstrate that value. So think about what we'll study a little later on in Ephesians 5. The church there is a, depicted as a bride who's being prepared for her groom. And, of course, the idea is that the church isn't ready yet. Uh, the church still needs to be washed by her bridegroom, Christ. But the day will come when she will be perfected, and she will be radiant on that day. Or perhaps you think about Revelation chapter 21, where the church is depicted as a brilliant city coming down from heaven. And, and what composes this city, or what the city is made of, is things like jewels and pearls and gold. And all of that imagery highlights the value of the church to God, that God treasures the church. And then, just in this passage that we just read this morning, verses 19 to 22 most especially, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time together this morning, you see three more pictures for the church that Paul lays out for us. Uh, in this passage, verses 19 to 22, the church is depicted as the kingdom of God and as the family of God and as a holy temple of God. And again, each one of these pictures highlights the value God places on the church. And it does this. It highlights the amazing privilege we have as the people of God to be a part of the church. So if you come here this morning and you're kind of discouraged about the church, I hope you'll be encouraged when you see God's perspective, when you see what God is doing and I'm praying that God will teach us to see the church the way that he sees her so that we will not become discouraged, but instead we'll invest ourselves in what God is doing in the world. 
So we're continuing our study of Ephesians this morning. Of course, we've been looking at this section. I asked Rob if he'd read from verses 11 to 22, because this is really kind of an entire section that goes together. And here Paul is talking about God's corporate plans of salvation. So salvation is an individual thing where God saves a man or a woman, draws them out of their sin, brings them to Christ, and gives them perfect righteousness and a relationship with him that's an intimate relationship. But of course, it's not just individual It's also corporate, so that when an individual is saved, he or she becomes a part of something much larger and much greater than himself or herself, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. Really, in this section from verse 11 to 22, you see Paul uh, put forward a picture of a new people, a new humanity, this new people of God that is the church. And we said, as we studied through this, that the remarkable thing about this new people is that it's composed of individuals that used to hate each other. So he talks about Jews and Gentiles. And if you're not familiar with that word Gentile, it simply means a non-Jew. And in Paul's day, these groups absolutely hated each other, would have nothing to do with one another. But now Christ came and wonderful things had happened. And those who were estranged and were far away from one another have now been brought together into one body. They've become one new people. So as we studied verses 11 to 13, we saw that the Gentiles were brought from being far away from God and the people of God now brought into a relationship with God and with his people, with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And then two weeks ago, we looked at verses 14 to 18. We focused on the fact that Jesus is our peace. If you want to know what Christianity is about, it is not about following rules. It's not about being good enough for God. It's not about being a nice person or believing a particular set of facts about Jesus or God. It's about a person, Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. And in that section, we saw that Jesus is our peace. Uh, He is the one who himself brings peace. He is the one who fulfills prophecies that proclaim that he would be the peace of his people. And he has brought us peace with God, and he's brought us peace with one another. And Paul lays that out in verses 14 to 18 for us there. So now Jews and Gentiles, again, they're one. And in verse 19 to 22, our passage for study this morning, Paul tells these Ephesian believers, really, what's the practical results of what Christ has done? Uh, And as he lays out these practical results of what Christ has done, he gives us again these three pictures of the church. Uh, He pictures the church for us as a kingdom. He pictures the church for us as a family. And he pictures the church for us as a temple. And each one of these images will help us understand the wonder of what God has accomplished in Christ and the privilege it is to be a part of the church. If you have the handout that you received as you came through the door this morning, you'll see there's three points to the sermon Uh, The first point is that the church as God's kingdom, or the church is God's kingdom. The idea is it's pictured as God's kingdom. The second point is the church as God's family. And then the third point, the church as God's temple. So we're going to look at each one of these pictures and try to to gain um, insight into how we should live and how we should think about the church. Look with me, if you will, at the first part of verse 19. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So in the first part of verse 19, Paul is again, he's speaking primarily to Gentiles, the Ephesian believers in the church of Ephesus and the the churches in the city surrounding Ephesus. They were primarily Gentiles or non-Jews. And he reminds them who they used to be. He says that they were strangers and aliens. That word stranger there, it it speaks of a foreigner, but in particular, it speaks of a a foreigner who's only in a, a nation that's not his own or her own for a short time. The word alien there actually refers to a foreigner who is a resident alien or someone who stays in a country that's not his own or her own for a long period of time. But if you think about both of those groups have one thing in common. 
They don't belong. They don't have the privileges of citizenship in the nation where they are staying. And that's how it was for the Ephesian believers. Before Christ, they did not belong to God. And they did not belong to the people of God. In the words of verse 13, they were far off. But now you see that they have become fellow citizens. They've become a part of something greater than themselves. They've become a part really of of a kingdom. The word saints there refers to believers, to those who have trusted in Christ. Really, it's an amazing word that speaks of God's holy ones. To think that if you trusted in Christ, you are God's holy one. That he looks at you that way, as if you're perfectly holy. That's who the saints are. And in this passage, it probably refers especially to Jewish believers who were in the Lord before these Gentile believers. Because, of course, at the beginning, it was primarily a a movement of Jews to faith in Christ. And then, of course, God's plans were for the Gentiles as well. And while Paul does not specifically use the word kingdom here in this verse, it's pretty clear that that's what he had in mind when he speaks of these Jews and Gentiles of being fellow citizens together. And the idea is that now in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, they enjoyed equal rights and privileges as the people of God. They were both together a part of the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Now, to put it most simply, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules. In a sense, God rules over all, right? In a sense, God rules over the entire universe. That is true. He is the sovereign king of the entire universe. In another sense, the kingdom of God refers to the place where God's rule is manifest or where it's seen. Uh, So it's manifest in heaven where God rules in heaven over angels and over the redeemed before his presence. It's also manifest in the lives of believers, men and women who have put their trust in Christ. In a sense, that's the kingdom of God. But in this verse, Paul is picturing the kingdom of God as a special group of people believing Jews and believing Gentiles who are now together. And they're together in one body. They're together in the church of Jesus Christ. So he's referring now to the church. So whenever someone becomes a Christian, he or she becomes a part of the church, which is to say he or she becomes a part of the kingdom of God. And the amazing fact about that is that God becomes his or her king, ruling in his heart and her mind for their good and for his glory. I like how James Montgomery Boyce said about this. He said, The kingdom comes whenever the righteousness, peace, and joy of Jesus enter an individual's life, transforming it and bringing spiritual blessing. So, friends, every believer is a part of the kingdom of God, and the church as a whole is the kingdom of God because God rules over the church just as surely as he rules over each individual believer. Let's make two observations about this before we move on. Consider with me the wonderful privilege it is to be a part of the kingdom of God. I know we're Americans. I know we don't like kings. I know we don't think about ourselves in that term, but, but God's a good king. And we're a part of a kingdom that will never end. God is a perfect king, and he is ours. When Missy and I lived overseas, we enjoyed being citizens of the United States because we went to international airports. We often got to go faster than other people from other nations. We thought that was a good thing to be able to go through customs more quickly. We also had kind of a sense of security that if something went bad, you know, our our nation would stand behind us. And so we liked having the blue passports. It was a privilege for us to be a part of this country, to be a citizen of this country. The idea then is how much greater, how much greater of a privilege is it for us as believers to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be citizens of the kingdom of God. We have tremendous privileges. Again, we have a good king. What it means, if God is your king, is that he has taken it upon himself to rule in your life for your good and only for your good. 
which means whatever pressing difficult thing you're facing this morning, I know in a room like this there are many pressing difficult things. If you are in Christ, if God is your king, he is ruling in your life for your good. And he will not fail to accomplish that good in you and through you. And when the day comes, he will bring you safely home to heaven. Christ Fellowship, we must be a heavenly-minded people. We must have our eyes fixed on this king. We have a glorious captain. The Lord Jesus is the captain of our faith. The Lord Jesus is the one who took it upon himself to defeat all the enemies of the kingdom of God. So at the cross, he overcame Satan. He overcame death. He overcame sin through his perfect work. He is victorious, and here's the reality for us. Because we follow him, we are victorious in him. Which means tomorrow morning, when you're feeling dry and struggling and thinking about how you're going to go through the day, you can think, Jesus already won the victory for me today. And he calls me to live in light of that victory and to live in the good of that victory. We also have a bond with all who have faith in Jesus Christ. So if you travel to another country, you've met believers in a, another nation, you know immediately you have a connection with them that, that's deeper than all the differences because there are differences. We look different from one another. We speak different languages. Our cultures are distinct. Of course, there are these differences. And yet, if they have Jesus and we have Jesus, then we have this deep fundamental unity that enables us to pray for one another sincerely and to love one another truly. Why? Because we're fellow citizens of this kingdom. We share Jesus. And then, of course, we have a shared destiny. And here's the reality. The kingdoms of this world are passing away. And so if you look around the world and you see corruption and you see things breaking down, don't be surprised by that. That's just what the Bible has always taught us, that the kingdom of this world is passing away. But there is a kingdom that is on the rise. There's a kingdom that is coming. There's a kingdom that will rule in glory forever. The great privilege for us is that one day when our suffering is done, we will see our king face to face. Isaiah 33, 17, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. It's a privilege to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. So do you realize that you're part of something cosmically glorious? This little church is a part of something so inexpressibly glorious that when we see it with our own eyes, we will not believe it. We'll struggle to, to grasp what God has done. And calling together people from every age and every place, all who put their trust in Jesus. And we will surround the throne. That's what we're a part of. We're a part of something so much greater than, than our own little lives. It means this little church is just one expression of this majestic kingdom. And again, it can be easy to become discouraged, right? One of the traps for us as believers is we start looking at this world and we start following the news. And of course, the news is always bad news because then you click on it. And when you click on it, they get more money, and so they put more bad news up there. And, and what happens is we get so bogged down in all the badness of this world that we forget that we're a part of this glorious kingdom. And we're not meant to live that way. We're meant to live with eyes of faith, looking forward to this kingdom which is coming, and looking forward to our king who reigns even now. And Ephesians 2, verse 19, tells us that we are a part of that kingdom. Notice finally that the kingdom of God has no second-class citizens. I don't mean finally in terms of the sermon's over because we're nowhere near over. I mean in terms of point one. The kingdom of God has no second-class citizens. Do you notice that they're fellow citizens there? So Gentiles have now been brought in, and they're not given a seat in the back. 
No, they're given a seat beside their Jewish brothers and sisters, their fellow citizens with the saints. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the church. Both were fully loved and fully accepted by God. And so both had the privilege of fully loving and accepting one another. That's what's true of us today. There is no room for divisions in the body over things that divide us in other places, things like ethnicity or education level or socioeconomic differences or cultural distinctions. We should welcome one another and love one another in precisely the same way that God has welcomed and loved us. So here you see this, this beautiful picture of a kingdom. And by God's grace, we're a part of this kingdom, the church. Now look at the second part of verse 19. You see a second image. The church is the family of God. Paul goes on to say, and members of the household of God. That word household there, it's a word that really speaks of a close family. So some words for house in the New Testament, they talk about the family and then the servants in kind of a broader community. This really refers more to the family itself. And we talked about the great privilege that it is to be a fellow citizen in the kingdom. But how much greater of a privilege is it to be a son or daughter of God? Not simply a citizen, praise God that we're citizens, but now sons and daughters. That's what the church is. The church is the family of God. There is an intimacy and a love in this image that is tremendous if you think about it. God is our father. God, here, he delights to be our father, which is to say God is not up in heaven looking down upon us, discouraged and frustrated uh, and somewhat, you know, wishing he had made a different deal. Instead, he looks down on us and he sees, that's my precious daughter. And he looks down on us and says, that's my precious son. And he loves us. And in terms of our relationship with one another in the church, it means that we are more than friends. So it's a good thing to be friends. I hope that you're friends with your brothers and sisters in this church. But realize that we're more than friends, that we're brothers and sisters, that we're family which means that we have this obligation and this privilege to love one another in that way. There's no reason to be divided by things that divide us in our culture. Why? Because we're part of the same family. So what difference should it make in our lives that we're part of the family of God? Well, we should be a thankful people. We should be thankful that God is our father. Christians, we should be thankful. You know, overflowing with praise is something that we're told to do. You know, praise God, rejoice in the Lord. Why? So we have these tremendous privileges. Be thankful for the privilege of having God as our father. God provides for his children, doesn't he? God comforts his children in their afflictions, doesn't he? God chastens his children so that they grow in holiness. That's hard. That's painful in the moment. But afterwards, it produces the peaceful fruits of righteousness by those who are trained by it and those who are trained by it. God protects his children from a thousand physical and spiritual dangers. If you think about it, our enemies are stronger than we are. But God keeps us, and he protects us, and he walks with us. And any pain or suffering in our lives is there because God intends to turn it to our good. And we can receive that truth by faith. Perhaps the greatest privilege is the access we have to God through prayer. To think that at any moment of the day, we can stop what we're doing and just go into the very throne room of heaven and talk to our Father about what we need, or about how we're feeling, or about what struggles we're facing, or about how we want to be used of him to accomplish something good for his kingdom, and to know that, that, that God hears us, and hears us as a son or a daughter. It's a privilege to say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
We should also be thankful that God has given us brothers and sisters to walk through life with. Now, that's hard, right? It's difficult, particularly in the church when you have relationships that are broken. That can be very painful. And, of course, it happens. Why does that happen? It happens because we're sinful. Uh, and because I want something and you want something else. And so we conflict over it and we fight over it. And if we're not careful, what happens is division happens. And, of course, that's a painful, that's a hard thing. It's difficult to be hurt by someone in the church but have you ever considered what a privilege it is to be a part of the church, to have brothers and sisters? So around the room this morning, we have brothers and sisters by the millions who pray for us. Now, in America, we don't think about it as much because we enjoy such freedom of religion. But our brothers and sisters who are in persecuted countries, it is significant to them to know that they have brothers and sisters all around the world who are praying for them. We have that great blessing. And in terms of the local church, we have a network of support as we go through life. So many people in our culture are lonely and isolated and sad. And here's the thing. We don't have to be lonely and we don't have to be isolated and we don't have to carry our burdens by ourselves. Why? Because we're a part of this body. We're part of this church. We're part of having brothers and sisters around us who can pray with us or who can help us in hard seasons or who can strengthen us when we're weak. Or who can exhort us when we need to be kind of spurred on? Or who can love us enough to confront us when we're kind of wandering away after sin? We have this privilege of being involved in a network of relationships. And we should invest in this network of relationships. We have the privilege of being on mission with one another for the sake of spreading the gospel in this community and among the nations. It's a privilege to have brothers and sisters. You know, we also should love our brothers and sisters. So maybe a third application would be that we should love one another. That seems simple enough. We would all say that we want to love our brothers and sisters. And, of course, God loves each one of his children. And if God loves each one of his children, then we should love one another as well. So what does it look like? Well, it looks like a thousand different things. Most especially, it looks like laying down my rights for the good of others. It looks like serving others. It looks like investing in relationships. That's hard in our culture. One of the things that keeps us from loving one another well in the West is that we value time so much. We value time more than people. And because we value time more than people, it's very easy for us to just kind of cut off relationships at a particular time because we have more important things to do. And we kind of have to fight against that. Look around the room this morning. Seriously do that. I know sometimes pastors just say stuff, but just look around the room this morning and realize that these are your brothers and sisters and that they're more important than time. That time is coming to an end, but these brothers and sisters, well, they're going to go with you into all eternity. And so why not invest in one another now? Why not spend time with one another now? Uh, as an elder in this church, I'm so grateful, and I know that Ron and Scott are so grateful for the way we see you investing in one another after the services and even before the service, just talking to one another talking to one another about spiritually encouraging things and praying for one another. It's a good thing to do. We want you to, to continue to do that, continue to invest in one another that way because God is using that to make this a church that, that really loves each other. And, and we praise God for that, and we want to see that grow. Another way we try to invest in relationships at Christ Fellowship is community groups. So we have five community groups that are meeting during the week for the sake of going deeper in relationships. And if you're not involved in one of those, I'd encourage you to to get involved in one of those. Why? Because it will give you opportunities to invest in your brothers and sisters and to get to know them more. 
Loving your brothers also looks like serving them. We said that every Sunday. This happens because a multitude of volunteers come and get things done. Things like getting the chairs clean, getting the chairs aligned, welcoming you with a big smile when you come through the door, having the coffee out, preparing to sing God's praises with you, to lead you in songs of praise, caring for our little ones. So many different things have to happen in order for us to be able to worship the Lord together. And we have these volunteers that do that. And why do they do that? They, they do that because they love you, because they're expressing love for you in that way. And there's room for more volunteers in Christ Fellowship. Amen. <laughs> Loving our brothers and sisters also looks like forgiving one another, doesn't it? Forgiving one another. That's hard because when you forgive the other person, you have to absorb the pain and the debt of the offense. You can't take it from that person. You actually have to absorb it. And that's hard. But we do sin against one another, and that can lead to broken relationships. But if we love one another, we must forgive one another. And we must pursue reconciliation with one another so that Satan would not have an advantage. One of the things Satan wants to do in this church is sow division and disunity and broken relationships. And the way we get past that is by humbling ourselves and in love pursuing peace and unity in the Holy Spirit. Loving our brothers and sisters also looks like refusing to separate from one another over secondary issues. We are different from one another. We have different opinions about secondary issues, things like, who should I vote for? How should we discipline our children? How should we educate our children? What movies are appropriate for children? Should I drink alcohol or should I not drink alcohol? And you could list all these different lists of things that people in this room will make different determinations about. And in many ways, they're matters of conscience. And Satan loves to come in and he loves to take matters of conscience and use that to split a body, right? And we should not do that. If we love one another, what will we do? We will welcome one another as we are commanded to in God's word. And we'll love one another enough to think through those difficult decisions, to help one another make wise decisions as we go through this life. So here you see the second image for the church, the family of God. There's a third image. Verses 20 to 22, this is the longest description. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. There it is. It's a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here the imagery changes. He began by picturing the church as a kingdom. And then he moved to picturing the church as a family. And now he kind of winds up this vision of the church by showing us this glorious temple. We will not be able to say everything about what Paul says here. This is you know, by far the most detailed of the descriptions that he gives. But I do want us to see four truths about the church as a temple. And the first truth is that the church is founded on the truth of God's word. Look at the first part of verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles there, well, they were the men that Christ chose to be with him. And he discipled them. And then he called them to be the leaders of the church. Those who would share the gospel and teach the gospel to the early church. It's possible that that word prophets there refers to the prophets of the Old Testament. It's more likely that it refers to men who were particularly gifted in the New Testament to speak God's word in the churches in the days before the New Testament was complete. But if you look at it together, the apostles and the prophets, they both had the same function, and that function was to teach God's word. And the idea here is that the foundation is not so much the men themselves, because we're all temporary. The foundation is the eternal truth of God's word. 
It's the truth that these men taught. I was helped by what John Stott had to say about this in his commentary. He says, in practical terms, this means that the church is built on the New Testament scriptures. They are the church's foundation documents. And just as a foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any who claim to be apostles or prophets today. Christ Fellowship as a church, we must build our ministry on the foundation of God's word. God has always, always built his church through his word. The church was born on the day of Pentecost when? When Peter spoke forth the word of God and the gospel. And 3,000 put their faith in Jesus. And God has been building his church through the, wor- through the world and throughout history ever since. So if we want our church to be a church that grows spiritually, which is to say, if we want to speak forth God's word into one another's lives and see the Holy Spirit take the truth of God's word and shape one another into the image of Christ. That's what ministry is. Everything else supports ministry, but ministry is us speaking the truth of God's word into one another's lives. The Holy Spirit takes it and helps us grow and become like Jesus. If we want to see this church have that kind of ministry, we have to be founded on and remain upon the truth of God's word. This is how God does it. This is why we practice expositional preaching, which is preaching that takes the main point of the passage and makes it the main point of the sermon. The idea is we want to expose what is in God's word, and then we want to think together about how we can apply the truth of God's word to our lives so that we are transformed. That's what we want to do as a church. So pray that for our church. Pray that the elders of this church will be men of God who love God's word and who know God's word. Pray that our sermons will always be taken directly from the truth of God's word and not the opinions of men. Why should you pray that way? Because churches wander away. That's why. And we should pray that God would help us remain on the only foundation he's given, which is his word. And pray that the members of this church will treasure God's word, spend time in God's word each day. I've had several conversations with people who said that they've been praying that they spend time in God's word each day in 2020. Praise God. May that continue. And may we be a church that teaches God's word to one another. So the church is founded on God's word. There's a second truth. The church is centered on Jesus Christ. Look at the second part of verse 20. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Uh, The cornerstone was the most important stone in the building, the temple itself. John MacArthur pointed this out. He said that the cornerstone had to be strong enough to support the other stones that were placed on it. It had to be precise. uh, It had to be placed precisely because all of the other stones in the structure were oriented to it. And uh, the cornerstone really served to unify the entire structure. And Paul says that's what Jesus does in the church. So Jesus supports the church. He directs the church and he unifies the church that's the idea so the church is about jesus christ which is why we sing about jesus which is why we center our sermons on jesus which is why we think about the gospel each time we gather together we must always center our church on the person of christ because jesus is the glorious savior who died on the cross so that we might be redeemed And Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep that feeds the church, feeds his flock, and protects her from wolves. And Jesus is the fruitful vine, right? John 15, he's the fruitful vine, and from him all the nourishment we need to grow, well, it flows through Christ himself. And Jesus is the perfect advocate. Isn't it good to know that at any moment the Lord Jesus himself is interceding for us with the Father? 
And for that reason, we will always be accepted. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. And as we see in this passage, Jesus is the cornerstone who supports the church, directs the church, unifies the church. So mark it down. The church that grows weary of preaching Christ and singing songs about Jesus and ceases to tell others about Jesus, well, that's a dying church. But a church that will center its ministry on the person of Christ, well, that's a church that God will bless. There's a third truth. The church is always growing. I found this to be very encouraging. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we began the sermon by talking about how it's possible to become discouraged when you think about the church and how it's doing in the world. But look at verse 21. Mark it down as a place to go to when you're discouraged because it gives you hope. Why? Because what's the temple doing? What does it do? It grows. The word in the original language is in the present tense, which means it is continuing to grow. It means it is going to continue to grow. More and more people are putting their faith in Jesus each day. And that's a wonderful, wonderful reality. I hope you realize that. I hope that you realize that the church of Jesus Christ is never on retreat. It never shrinks. Each day, each year, more and more people are coming into the church. It's a temple made of living stones. It's a picture in First Peter that we read about. And it's just growing. Why is it growing? Because God, the sovereign king of the universe, is at work putting together this beautiful structure. And in every age, more and more people are being saved. None are ever lost. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we have no reason to be alarmists. We have no reason to run around and say, if things don't change in two generations, there'll be no Christians. It's not true. Jesus can bring forth Christians at any moment, and he will. The church grows. And what a privilege it is that we have to join him in that work. God does not need us to grow his church, but he invites us to be involved. As we speak God's word into one another's lives and as we share the gospel with those who need to know Christ, there's a fourth truth. God indwells the church, and this is magnificent. Look at verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, God is revealed as one who is willing to dwell among his people, right? There's the tabernacle, there's the temple. God is dwelling among his people. In the New Testament, God is revealed to be one who dwells in his people. So in 1 Corinthians 6, you see this picture of individual believers as uh, their bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit indwells each believer. That's one, listen, that's one of the things that makes Christianity utter nonsense to people that don't have faith. You mean to say that you think God lives inside of you? Yes. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's the experience that I've had. So we have to understand there's this dramatic truth that God lives in his people, but verse 22 is teaching us something more. It teaches that God also indwells his, his people corporately so that all together by the Holy Spirit of God, God indwells the people of God. That word translated dwelling place, it speaks of a permanent home. The church is God's home. Listen to John Stott again. He said, speaking of believers, they are his home on earth. They will also be his home in heaven. For the building is not yet complete. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Only after creation of the new heaven and the new earth will the voice from the throne declare with emphatic finality, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. Brothers and sisters, God will be our home for all eternity. 
But the staggering truth is that we will be his home for all eternity. And the idea is that God will dwell that closely with us. That God will have that intimate of a relationship with his people for all eternity. That is what God is doing in building the church. So look at this passage and look at these three images that you see for the church there. The church is God's kingdom. God is our king who rules over his people with righteousness and with peace. The church is God's family. God is a loving father who watches over and provides for his children. The church is God's temple. God is building the church, his eternal dwelling. So do you see the way God values the church? Do you realize that God is committed to building his church every day and every year? Do you see the immense privilege that it is for us to be a part of that? To be a part of what God is doing. This is what God is doing in the world. This is what God is doing in the world. He is building his church. And the church is the only reality that will survive this quickly dying world. So here's my question. Are you a part of the church? Looking at this vision, looking at this reality, are you a part of this? Well, friend, if you're not, you can be. And the way to become a part of the church is to put your faith in Jesus. And that brings us to the gospel, that we were created by God, his good, loving, holy creator who made us to love him, to serve him. He wanted to have a relationship with us that would be marked by a closeness, by an intimacy. And yet our first parents sinned against God in the, in the garden. They decided it would be better to live for themselves as opposed to living for God. They decided that they wanted to live their way and not his way. And we sinned in them, and because we come from them, we're all born with that same disposition the idea of autonomy, the idea that I will be king in my own life and I will do what I want to do. And it leads us to sin against God in a thousand different ways. And it leads us to the brokenness of relationship with one another where we sin against one another in a thousand different ways. Why? Because we're all trying to be the king of our universe. And so there's conflict and war. And this is what sin does. It breaks people and things. And sin is serious because sin separates us from God and it brings us under the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And the message of the Bible is that one day, each and every one, listen, of you will stand before God. And you will give an account for your life. And that is a solemn thing to consider. And the Bible has already said this, that if your hope is that you can be good enough for God, the Bible says you have no hope. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God. And so left to ourselves, there is no hope. And yet here's the good news of the gospel. In Jesus, we have tremendous hope. Because who did Jesus come? He came to do what we could not do. God the Father sent his son into the world to live a perfect life that you and I have failed to live. Jesus walked perfectly before God his entire life, always loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, always loving others as he loved himself. And then what? He laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice, bearing in himself the penalty, the judgment, the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died under that wrath, and then he rose from the dead, showing this, that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice. And now, friend, if you will turn from your sins and put your hope in Jesus, trust in him, him alone, his perfect life, his death on the cross in your place. Oh, if you will trust in Christ this morning, he'll be your savior. God will look at you as if you live Jesus' perfect life. He will give you as a gift the perfect righteousness of Christ. And all of the sins that you've committed, friend, just like I've committed, well, they will have been paid for by Jesus at the, at the cross. 
That's the hope we have this morning. That's why we gather together this morning is because Jesus has done this for us. And think about it. This gift of forgiveness is so magnificent. But, but if you followed along this morning, you see that there's so much more involved as well. This tremendous salvation that we've received is not only the forgiveness of sins. It's more than that. Because when you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, you become a part of the people of God. You become a part of this church that we've been talking about all this morning. So you become a part of God's kingdom so that God rules in your heart and life for your good and for his glory. And you become a part of God's family so that God becomes your loving father. And you receive millions of spiritual brothers and sisters around the world. And you become a part of God's temple, living stones that are being built together. And it's neat because we're all different. All the stones are different shapes and sizes put together in just the right place. And that's what God's doing. And you become a part of that. And the rest of your life is lived in this relationship with God that's marked by love and forgiveness. And here's a big one, hope. Not, I hope things are going to turn out, but I have a sure and steady anchor of my soul that no matter how big the waves look right now, God is carrying me through it. And I will be with him forever. Well, friend, do you have that hope this morning? You can have that hope if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ. If you want to talk with someone about that, I would love to talk with you about what Jesus has done for me, about what he can do for you, or just talk to someone sitting next to you this morning. They'd love to talk with you about what Jesus has done for them. So here we, we began this sermon noting that it's possible to come discouraged when you look at the state of the church, but I hope we've been reminded this morning that the church is what God is doing in the world, and it's a glorious work. It's a bride being beautified. It's a kingdom being strengthened. It's a family growing in numbers day by day. It's a, it's a temple always increasing in size until it's perfect. And God will do that work. So may we value what he values. May we treasure the church as he does. And let's pray.